Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host, and I am so excited for you to meet our guest today, the Grammy-nominated, multiple award-winning American folk singer, songwriter, and author. Her songs have been recorded by Tim McGraw, Blake Shelton, Kathy Matea, Boy George, Jimmy Buffett, and more. She's a titan, and I'm talking about Mary Gaucher. She's written so many wonderful songs, and we're featuring three of them on the show. So you want to make sure you stick around for the whole thing. One of my favorite songs of hers, which was featured on Yellowstone, is Mercy Now. And uh, she shares that one with us as well today. So you're in for a treat, folks. She brings it all to the table today. You're going to get to hear from an Enneagram 8 She has an amazing ongoing story of recovery. She's an amazing human being. She's authored a brand new book, which Ian will introduce. We're thrilled to have her, Mary Gaucher. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now here's the host of our show, Ian Crom. Hey, Typology Tribe, welcome to this week's episode, an incredibly special episode, because here in our studio, we have my great friend, the inimitable, legendary, singer, songwriter, author of this amazing new book, Saved by a Song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting. Please welcome to the garage, the wonderful Mary Gaucher. It is so good to be in your garage with you. (laughs) (laughs) Enneagram 8. Solid 8, right down the line. Check, 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 check. Oh, man. (laughs) We're going to have a lot of people very excited. (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're going to be doing all kinds of stuff. And where I want to start, though, is where everyone should start with Mary, which is mm, the, the music. Song. Yeah. song, man. And I've asked you to play one of my very favorite songs of yours. Tell us a little bit about the story behind the song. And we're going to talk about your book, Being a Crazy Enneagram 8. And, but I want to hear the, and we're going to close with, of course, the iconic favorite of Mary Gaucher. I'm not going to tell everybody. It. Yeah, okay. I'm going to tell you what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. It's the first time I heard that song, it leveled me. So I can't, I can't right, wait for everybody else to get leveled. As okay. Well. well, we'll wait on that one. Tell us about the song, Amsterdam. Well, Amsterdam is a new song uh, that I wrote with my partner, Jamie Harris. Um, we were booked to play a festival in Denmark, and it was in that little moment between. Delta and Omicron, and we were getting out on the road again before there was yet another variant during the pandemic. Uh, And what I did was use flyer miles so that we could upgrade the flight from Nashville to to Denmark. Uh, And what happened was we had to route it through Boston a little early, a couple of days early. Um, And uh, the connecting flight uh, didn't work out there was engine problems or something and so we were going to be stranded in Boston instead of moving uh, forward in our trip to uh, to Denmark and I came up with this great idea well can you get me to Amsterdam (laughs) 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 and it was a solid yes and then I opened my laptop and checked in my favorite hotel in Amsterdam because it was still pandemic-y, uh, even though there was an in-between, uh, was the, the price I used to pay in the 90s. Uh, wow. I love this old hotel in Rembrandt Square called the Schiller Hotel. Wow. And we got it for 140 euros a night. I've written six songs in that hotel, and I love it. Wow. Um, and I'm like, we're going to the Amsterdam, we're going to the Schiller Hotel. Mm. And this is the best thing that ever happened. I'm so glad the flight didn't connect. Uh, and so we took what could have been a, um, a little bit of a stressful delay and turned it into the best three days ever. Because hmm. Jamie had not been to Amsterdam, my partner, uh, and I, I got to, to bring her down these streets that I love so much and show her the places that I love. I have a long relationship with the Netherlands, my first record deal was in the Netherlands, and I've been going there for 25 years, and um, I, uh, I just am very, it feels like a home away from home. And it had been a while since I'd been there. So this is a joyful song about returning to this place that I love with a person that I love. Mm. Uh, and so the joy in it is, is real. Let's, <laughs> let's hear it. Let's do it. 
Anthony and I are going to sing some backgrounds. We got we got the gochettes here, <laughs> ladies. Ladies and gentlemen. I love it. Yes. <laughs> you know, gochettes the sounds like gochettes. it could have been something. The gochettes. <laughs> the gochettes. <laughs> <laughs> Bicycle bells on Rembrandt Street Spanish shoes on a stranger's feet News bar caps, old Dutch men An alley cat with a Cheshire grin Sailor's bars, old cafes Cobblestone carriageways Kisses in the summer rain Falling back in love again all right, feeling all right in Amsterdam tonight. All right, feeling all right in Amsterdam, Amsterdam tonight. Rocking horse carousels, Calliope's cathedral bells, hyacinths, daffodils, tulips in the window sills. It's been a heartbreak here. I'm so glad to be back here, walking these old streets with you. Wide awake, a dream come true. All right, feeling all right in Amsterdam tonight. All right, feeling all right in Amsterdam, Amsterdam Stairs, windows open to the square, late night coffee, gingerbread, cotton sheets, a king size bed. None of this is gonna last, all of it is gonna pass. But I look into your eyes and see I got everything I'll ever need. All right. Feeling all right in Amsterdam tonight. All right, feeling all right in Amsterdam, Amsterdam. <laughs> a lot of words coming at me i'm still one thing about uh having a lot of new songs is that i have to learn them yeah, <laughs> yeah. and writing them and learning them is uh uh are, are two different things yes right uh you know I, I used to own restaurants way back long ago and every time i would rewrite the menu uh rewrite the um the 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 prices i would have to relearn 
uh, from scratch what everything costs and I would know it instinctively and then I would have to remember anew. And when you memorize things one way and then have to erase that mm. and install something new, uh, for some reason that, that's harder. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is for sure. Mary, you have one of the most colorful histories of any human being I know. I have a story. <laughs> All right, well, give us a, give us, give, give folks a, because we are going to talk about the Enneagram. We're going to talk about Enneagram 8. But, but anyone who knows about Enneagram 8s, these challengers, these larger-than-life personalities. And you would, I mean, you and I have spent a good amount of time together. And I know this is going to come up in the story, right? Um, but your relationship with anger Mm -hmm. in your life has been a big theme oh it's been so hard yeah. right yeah let's talk about it unpack the story and then make any comment you want to about anger or anything else but just give people a you know 50,000 foot flyby gosh you know it's a long story now I turned 60 March 11th mm -hmm. so there's six decades of story which is hard to condense but um, sort of the Wikipedia page version I was born to an unmarried woman in 1962 in the Deep South and so I was put up for adoption. Uh, I spent my first year in a place called St. Vincent's Women and Infants Asylum. Um, and uh, I was relinquished at birth uh, and adopted at a year old into an Italian Catholic family. Uh, uh, my parents, parents both, all four of them immigrated from Italy. Uh, and so, um, uh, that family was a little wobbly, unstable. My adoptive dad was uh, alcoholic, uh, and there were struggles in that in that household, uh, and that led me to leaving home quite young. Mm. I left uh, probably at 15, something like that. Uh, and I ended up in all kind of trouble and rehabs and trying to get sober. I finally did. I'm in recovery. Uh, I got sober uh, in uh, 1990, uh, and I was 27. After I got sober, I was I was in the restaurant business at the time. I had investors, and uh, they had sent me to chef school before I got sober. And I I learned how to to cook at a pretty high level. I I was able to uh, open, establish, and run restaurants. Even though I was a a pretty big mess with alcohol and drugs, I was able to work in the restaurant business, which uh, is um, something that drunks seem to do. Uh, Anthony Bourdain took the lid off of that, didn't he? Yes. He showed yes. us the truth about that. And it's, he, his book still speaks to me, Kitchen Confidential. Um, but I got sober on opening night of my second restaurant. I got arrested for drunk driving, and that was it for me. Mm. And then I was brought to an open mic by one of my waitresses, uh, which is a place where uh, entry-level songwriters pay $5 to go play a song. And my restaurant, the second restaurant, was a Cajun-style full-service restaurant right next door to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Yeah. And so when I was brought to the open mic by a young woman named Christy Zorlango, and I saw her on stage playing an original song, it was like a light bulb screwed in, and uh, uh, everything in my being said, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to write a song and get on that stage. I had always fancied myself some kind of a writer, but I was in the restaurant business and all I ever did was work and I didn't write. Um, and I had a guitar, but I didn't play it uh, anymore. I had played it when I was younger and just put it away. But after that open mic, I dusted it off, I restrung it, I started building calluses, and I started going to the open mic. Uh, one thing led to another and eventually I did write a song, play it at the open mic. Uh, and start going to open mics uh, a lot. What was that experience like? It was terrifying. Mm -hmm. It was the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, it was primal fear like no other. Wow. Um, I talk about it a little bit in, in the book. Um, I compared the experience to having a 357 pointed at me in the uh, parking lot of a biker bar in Baton Rouge, and the experience at the open mic was more frightening <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was just terrifying absolutely terrifying and yet can, can some, I just can I ask you a question <laughs> what about it was terrifying I just felt so exposed mm. I felt so vulnerable and I felt so uh, uh, outside of my comfort zone 
I, I remember thinking this could kill me. Mm. Um, you know, I was good in the kitchen and part of me thought I should just get back to the kitchen and stay there. But another part of me thought, well, how much worse can it get than that? Try it again, try it again. And I, uh, something in me, I think it's probably the eight in me said, keep going, keep trying. That's an amazing statement on you as a person, but also as the type eight too, right? That you would be more terrified to get on that stage and, and be vulnerable with a song that you wrote even more so than when you were threatened with a gun. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, see, I was, I was older, you know, at that point I was in my mid thirties and to just be on stage for the very first time in your mid thirties, it's a room full of people that are mostly younger than me and that are so much better at it than me. I mean, I, I was, I was shaking. I was just, absolutely terrified and what's you know of course the great irony here and the great beauty of stories like this is that you could if i had said to you at that open mic night by the way mary you are going to be a grammy nominated songwriter (laughs) who is celebrated in music city nashville tennessee as one of its great icons and you're going to write a book a memoir title saved by a song just thought i'd let you know that tonight as you do this first song you just it would have been impossible to believe right yeah impossible that i could get here from there wow you know and yet life is funny that way Mm -hmm. you know Uh, maybe it was terrifying to the degree that it was because it meant so much to me Mm. That I really wanted to do it. Wow. Like it was in my heart of hearts. It's what I really wanted to mm. do. Uh, I, I really, really, really wanted to be a, 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 a songwriter and, and an author and a person of words. Mm. Uh, and because of drugs and alcohol, I couldn't focus. Mm. I couldn't focus. I could, you know, machete my way through a kitchen, but I couldn't focus on the 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 kind of things that make writing good. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the self-awareness or the ability to, um, to sit still and do this kind of work until I got sober. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my recovery has been all about moving um, through the fear of uh, oh, a million things and towards the light, towards the calling, that, that whisper that asks of me to do what is frightening. Uh, and I'm always being asked <laughs> to do what is frightening. Mm. It just never ends. Mm. You, don't, you don't get there. There is no there. It's pretty constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, once, once a mountain is climbed, there's just going to be another mountain. And... Uh, you know, I'm now 32 years sober. So fast forward. Uh, I moved to Nashville when I was 40 to pursue this. Um, I tossed the keys to the investor and said, your restaurant, enjoy. <laughs> I'm out. Go Shea out. And uh, left Boston, came here in 2001, here being Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and I was very, very lucky. I got a record deal. Um, I was able to... Um, be on a label that I think is probably one of the coolest labels ever called Lost Highway Records, a division of Universal. Um, They had, oh my God, they had the best artists. They had Lucinda, Ryan Adams, uh, Johnny Cash. They put out a Hank Williams box set. Um, It was uh, an extraordinary time in Nashville. It was the very end, I think, of that kind of opportunity for an artist like like me. Mm. Uh, and I caught it. I just caught it, wow. just caught it. You know, it was a speeding car and I caught it. Wow. And, um, you know, it, it, it is a, uh, uh, a, my story is a story of possibility. You know, people look at me and go, well, you'd think that the Grand old Opry wouldn't want someone like Mary, you know, who's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am a gay woman and I walk like a duck. 
I talk like a duck. There's not a lot of swan going on here. I, I look like what I am. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing. And you don't see people like me on the Opry, but I play the Opry a lot. And so that's possibility for people who look like me um, to say, well, she did it. You know, and the same thing with getting a record deal at 40. Who gets a record deal at 40? Well, um, Gaucher did. Like, I am the one. Yeah, that is unheard of against, for against people all, that don't know. I mean, it doesn't happen. No. Not on a major label. No. No, because the demographic that participates most wholeheartedly in music is younger. Mm -hmm. And they want people their age, right. you know? So, against all odds, that's my story. It, mm. it, it's against all odds. And. It keeps happening, uh, uh, and and I I love that 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 I can be inspiration uh, for people who are are saying yeah you can't do this but well yeah you can mm -hmm. you can mm -hmm. yeah yeah one of my favorite retorts to people who say you can't I, and Anthony's heard me do this and many people say well you know I don't think I go who says says who mm -hmm. you know what I mean like yeah. you know you know who yeah. says that right you know, who says you can't do that right. It's pretty great. I want to do a reading from your book. Thank you. All right. And it's, it's uh, this again for people who are just uh, chiming in right now. Saved by a song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting by the inimitable, a word I've used twice today, uh, Mary Gaucher. And I love this, uh, which is taken from this chapter, Our Lady of the Shooting Star. Mm -hmm. So why don't you do this beautiful reading for me? Yeah, I'd love it. This scene takes place shortly after I moved to Nashville. Um, and it goes like this. The first year I lived in Nashville, I was invited to a party at music photographer Jim McGuire's house that became a song circle with Guy Clark, Lyle Lovett, John Hyatt, Joe Ely, Steve Earle, and Nancy Griffith. It was a wonderful night, and I was on the edge of my seat desperately wanting to go from being in the audience to swapping songs with that group of legends. I knew I was in deep waters, the new kid in town, but I longed to sit in that circle. I'd deeply admired everyone in it for many years. As the music was winding down, Nancy looked over and asked Mary, would you play us a song? I knew Nancy because I'd opened a string of shows for her a month prior. I was absolutely thrilled when she invited me to play. I sat in the chair she offered, took her guitar into my hands, and played a song I'd written called Our Lady of the Shooting Stars. The other songwriters closed their eyes and nodded as I played. Some even smiled. There was no wild applause when the song ended, but the smiles and nods made me feel like I belonged. I still had a long way to go, of course, but joining that circle was validation that moving to Nashville had been a good decision. Holding my own in that circle of songwriters whose records I owned and whose careers I followed gave me confidence. Being around songwriters I deeply admired humanized them. It made the star I was reaching for feel less distant. When I was done, I handed Nancy her guitar back, and she shook her head and said, No, you keep it. I froze holding her engraved signature sunburst Taylor 612 cutaway guitar in midair, question marks flashing in both of my eyes. It's yours, she said. When I moved to Nashville, Harlan Howard gave me his guitar. I'm giving you mine. I was speechless, but somehow found the courage to ask, would you sign it? And she did. Someone handed her a Sharpie, and she signed for Mary, because you will sing. I found out later it's an old Nashville tradition to pass on a guitar. It's an attempt to stay on the good side of the muse and the mystery. Some songwriters believe it is one way to keep songs flowing. Harlan gave Nancy one of his guitars because he felt there were no songs left in it for him, but maybe there were some inside it for her. Nancy had just done the same thing for me. It was, it was as if she was saying, welcome to Nashville, kid. Remember, you best stay on the good side of mystery and paradox. They will be your wheelhouse now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because you tale. will sing. I love that. I know. I know. I oh, know. man, that moves me. Me too. And, you know, we lost Nancy a few months ago. And, and on the day she died, we... Uh, 
we, we, my partner and I went up in my room and, and we, we restrung that guitar mm. and we played Nancy songs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Of which there are many. God, she was a really, really good songwriter. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of my favorites, because I needed, I needed to be shown how to, how to be a folk singer and maintain my Southern identity. Mm. She called her music folkabilly. Mm. Um, so she was very, very Texas. She was from Seguin, Texas, which, uh, if I remember right, Seguin Sports the lar largest pecan you've ever seen in, <laughs> in the center of town. Everybody got to have a claim to fame. Pecan capital. It's this giant pecan, bigger than a, Whoa. you know, bigger than an SUV. Uh, and Seguin uh, is on the Guadalupe River, and it's a it's a very Texas town. And uh, uh, she she held on to her her Southern identity, her Texas identity. Uh, and, and was a folk singer at the same time. And I think this was the beginning of Americana, if you were to ask me. Her and John mm -hmm. Prine mm -hmm. uh, singing folk music with the southern twang. Mm -hmm. So it's a collision of country uh, and folk. Mm -hmm. But the sensibility and, dare I say, politics, the, the subject matter uh, was folk, but the sound was country. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they blazed that trail so that I could walk down it. And you toured with John for what, a year? I, I toured with John quite a bit and with Nancy. Um, and uh, I mean, I toured with him. I, I opened the shows uh, and was, you know, very happy to to be a part of that for, for quite a while, a couple of years on and off. Uh, and just watch how the masters did their thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, Enneagram 8, Mary. Yeah. Let's talk about anger. Yeah. Let's talk about the good side of anger and the bad side of anger. Because, I mean, again, we've had this conversation before. And what I just actually heard you say was, you know, the good side of anger, right, is that part of you that says, screw it, I'm for it, I'm going to Nashville. You know, it's, mm -hmm. that, it's that anger that, you know, is gives you the power, the, the, the belief in self, the, you know, don't settle for what you're told can only be yours, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then, of course, you know something about the destructive side of anger, too. Yeah, I mean, that's been my big struggle. If I were to list, you know, my understanding of my own character defects, anger slash rage, uh, if we're going into the deadly sins as, um, as, as, you know, as described in the Bible, uh, rage, anger, uh, that's probably my number one defect. Hmm. Um, and I've had to really work on that. Um, if things aren't the way that I think they should be, and if there, here's the trigger for me, if there's a, if there's a injustice involved, I feel justified in being angry. And I've had to learn over many years of working on it that I need to be real careful with justifiable anger. Uh, and uh, uh, I've done harm with my anger. And I, I, uh, uh, I think of myself as a you know, justice fighter while I'm in it, and then I realize, gosh, that was just a justification. Mm. Um, if you're gonna be a justice fighter, you gotta use love, not anger. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, like you said, the, the upside of this type of personality that's embedded in me, and I think I was born with, is that there's this push to the impossible. And I think that's very uh, common in AIDS. They said you can't do it, but I can. Mm. They said it couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. Says who? Right. Or this watching people doing it going, well, if they can do it, I can do it. That almost arrogance um but behind it is this frustration with things as they are and and this discontent and need to move it forward uh in a new way uh and i think anger can be useful in that way uh, but when it's directed at a person or 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 a institution or a set of beliefs uh, it can be very very destructive very very quickly mm. uh and i've i've uh, you know, I have learned to be very careful when I feel it inside me. Yeah. It can, it can, it can do damage uh, quicker than anything. Mm -hmm. 
Nobody wants to be on the other side of a, of a very, very angry person. Mm-hmm. I know I don't. Uh, and so, uh, I don't know, maybe you know, is anger something that is, is common in the Enneagram 8? It is. Eight, nines, and ones are in what's called the anger triad, right? So the anger of the eight goes outward, right? It externalizes. Like sometimes you can be around, you've probably heard this. Have you ever heard someone say to you something like, no, Mary, you're a little intimidating. All the time. Or you're a little overwhelming. All the time. Right? It's, um, we call it the twos. You know, you're too much, you're too loud, you're too argumentative, you're too this, you're too that. You, 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 eights have the twos, right? It's like people experience them as um, being, like they radiate a kind of energy that is, um, can be scary to other people. Yeah. Right? And it's a little bit of a don't F with me energy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Without even knowing it. Without even knowing it. Yeah. Right? And what people tend not to know is that, I actually was just teaching a class at Lipscomb today about this, that to the eight, what feels like conflict to others feels like connection to them. Yes. And what feels like intimidation to others is actually intimacy to the eight. Oh my God, this is so me. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's my life story right there. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and uh, wow, that can be confusing to be on the, on the other side of that. Oh, my gosh, yeah. It sure can be. Mm. But we've spent a good amount of time together, and one of the things I know to be true about you, and this is the thing. First of all, I grew up with strong women. So strong women don't... You're, you're kind of surrounded. Oh, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I'm really comfortable with intense women. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, a woman who powers up around me, I can just get a smile on my face. I can just like, oh, here we go. You know, it's like, it's fine, you know. But for a lot of people, it's hard to be around women who are powerful and big, right? No less just people in general who are powerful yeah. and big. I think, with, I think eights are very misunderstood, though. And I say this because I'm knowing you. There's a deep tenderness in you. Mm-hmm. And there's a deep love. And there's mm-hmm. a deep, div- you're, you have a, in a friendship with you, what I feel is your devotion. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the word I would use. Is mm-hmm. in, when I'm with you, I feel your devotion. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a very, for me, a very aid experience. You know, mm-hmm. you can be crazy, which you are. You can get angry sometimes, which you do. But I never question your devotion. And if someone wants to mess with you, they have to come through me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I will tell them. I'm protective in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah. That, that anger can be like, hey, man, back off. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's, it's, it's not going to go away. So mm-hmm. I have to figure new ways to channel it that mm-hmm. aren't destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can do that in song. Uh, songs have saved me. That's why I called the book Saved by a Song. It's, it's, it's what I have used for many, many years to make sense of, uh, of things that are very, very confusing. All right, so let's put anger on the side. Yeah. And let's talk about love. Love, I love love. What's been your journey with love? Well, it has been um, uh, incredibly challenging. Uh, that. I have learned, and I didn't learn it till my 40s, uh, probably late 40s, that that year in the orphanage um, where I was unmothered left me with an attachment problem. Mm. I may say attachment disorder, but I, I, I don't have disordered attachment the way I used to, so I don't want to put that stigma on myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was attachment issues and it was modeled to me even though I was just a baby that the way to solve a problem is to cut and run Uh, and so that was what I learned and um, it was what I did and I I had to learn how to stay Mm. Uh, that said I also really struggled the, the deeper truth of all of it is I had to learn how to be with myself. Mm. I had to learn how to be with myself. 
that was, I think, the greatest source of my relationships problems. Mm. Even though I went through a lot of a lot of relationships, there there was one common denominator in all of them, and that was me. So, I made a vow and a decision uh, at fifty that I got to stop the madness. Mm -hmm. I'm putting the brakes on this, and I'm going to learn how to be with me. And uh, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was exponentially harder than getting sober. Getting sober uh, was a piece of cake compared to learning how to find happiness and peace and connection as a single woman. And once I started, I think I did start to master that, um, life got so much better. Mm, My one-year commitment uh, to myself uh, to be single grew into a two-year commitment and then a three-year commitment and I didn't know that this was how it would go but I ended up uh, between the ages of 50 and 55 staying single and not dating not flirting not trying uh, explaining to people that asked me out that I'm really on this path right now that that involves um, growth and commitment to myself and I I can't do it Mm. Uh, I I have to do this work or I'm not ever going to be able to do the work of being in a relationship Mm. so uh, it ended up being five years Uh, and uh, uh, I think that was really important for me I think it helped to heal the the fear of being alone Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, for most adoptees, our 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 primary fear is abandonment mm-hmm. because we were abandoned, and so I had to work through this this terror of being abandoned. Uh, and with great therapy, uh, I finally got it on a cellular level. You can't abandon an adult. Mm-hmm. That's childhood trauma. Wow. Adults can't be abandoned. They can be left, um, but th- that's different. And the, the terror and absolute mortification that I experienced was childhood trauma. I had PTSD, mm-hmm. and I had to work through it, and it took a while. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's kind of what I was working on uh, in music. It's certainly what I was working on in therapy and in recovery. Uh, it's what the book details uh, year by year, story by story of working through it. Um, uh, I wrote a whole chapter around John Lennon's song, Mother, which is him doing his work around his childhood abandonment. And I think he was uh, right about the age I was when I started doing it. Mm. Uh, he did uh, primal scream therapy with uh, a therapist named Dr. Janov. Uh, and the first single he released after leaving the Beatles was a song called Mother, where he ends it with Primal Scream. Well, that song is intense. It's intense. He scared the hell out of his fans. Mm-hmm. Like, what? what's going on here? Uh, and, and I, as someone who was, and still in some ways, continues to be doing the work, I know what's going on. He was using music and song to work through stuff. Um uh, mother, you had me. I never had you. Oh, that resonates with me. I mm. get that on a deep level, and I know that you got to rewrite that story. And mm-hmm. I know he wrote Mother trying to rewrite that story, and uh, that is such a beautiful work of art. And it opened the door for me to walk through and do mm-hmm. the work right. uh, as uh, as a songwriter. You know, I wrote a whole record called The Foundling, which is a song cycle of a baby who was left on the steps of an orphanage and how that story evolves into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did uh, the, the, uh, the back work of that record by reading book after book after book on adoption and fostering and attachment disorder and really educating myself and learning about it. Uh, and then it, it, it poured into the songs. Mm. And gosh, you know, I, I don't know how I would have gotten through all this craziness if I didn't have music. Yeah, right. Well, you, you actually raised kind of an interesting topic, which is we say that about eights, that underneath so much of the 
habitual patterns of acting, thinking, and feeling is a profound fear of betrayal. It's not just abandonment, but it's mm. a betrayal. And that's, in a way, I was hearing you, and we, we've had other conversations around relationships and love and about abandonment, but I'm also wondering, betrayal is a different kind of an mm -hmm. experience of abandonment. Is that, is that, does that resonate for you, oh the my fear God, of betrayal? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> it is incredible how I um, somehow, without consciously knowing it, we're complicated beings, aren't we? We are. Mm -hmm. I set up a situation where I would be betrayed. Mm -hmm. And I look at it and I put everything in place so that would happen. Mm. And I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. And mm -hmm. when it happened, I felt like my, I was on fire. And for years I burned. And that's how I made the commitment to get, mm -hmm. to get right with myself and God and get centered. And those five years, what drove that was betrayal. Mm -hmm. It's like, I can't live like this anymore. So, addiction. Mm -hmm. Heroin addiction. Yeah, man. Alcohol addiction, mm -hmm. love addiction. Yeah, man. Right? We, you know, we share a recovery journey together, and yeah. I'm so blessed to have you in some some of our little twelve step recovery communities. Thank where you, God for the programs that give us oh, a plan that works. It gives us a plan that works. Yeah. So we could sort of say for the eight. Well, you know, eights are lusting for life, and it's always you know now it's too much alcohol, it's too much pot, it's too much heroin, it's too much sex, it's too. You could say that. But, you know, underneath, in my experience, the question is never why the addiction. The question really is, what's the pain? Mm. Yeah. Now, you mentioned abandonment. I just want to just dig down one more layer, if it exists. Like, for you, when you look back on all the years of using and drinking, like, what was the pain? Like, what was the hot core that drove the need to medicate or to self-annihilate, chemically self-annihilate on a daily basis? Like, what, what was it? You know, I've identified that. I've identified that. And I think it was the deep-seated belief that I was unlovable. Mm. Because there's no other explanation for a mother leaving her baby and never coming back. Mm. And even when I found her through a search angel, uh, she was not willing to have a relationship with me. Mm. I internalized that belief that I, it was me, it had to be. And there was something intrinsically unlovable about me, and that was a secret I had to defend and protect. Mm. And it drove all my big decisions for a really long time. And mm. it, it's, if you believe that about yourself, uh, you are almost absolutely going to end up looking for a way to medicate that. Mm -hmm. Whatever way works, food, sex, love, drugs, alcohol, whatever you can find to take the, uh, the pain down a few notches, you know? And really the only way in the end I've learned to do it, and this goes back to that great question you asked, was to learn how to love myself mm -hmm. and to be with myself and that hole, to sit in a room and stare at the hole and figure out ways like, you know, uh, with a hammer and a screwdriver to chisel the marble and get the, get the, the hole smaller. And that's what my whole life has been about. And, you know, I sit here today with, with um, a very, very little emptiness. You know, I, I'm so grateful that I've survived. I don't know how I survived. Mm-hmm. I look back and, you know, there's a Dylan line. I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm still alive. <laughs> I feel that way. Yep. Uh, that that uh, by every right I should have successfully annihilated myself, but I didn't. You know, I think, I don't know if it's an Enneagram 8 thing, but the, the self-destructive and self-constructive forces inside of me are both very, very strong. Mm. Say that again, the self-destructive and self-constructive. They're at odds with each other mm. in me. And they're both very, very strong. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I would imagine the world itself is dealing with that. Mm -hmm. 
We're either going to learn how to get along and love each other, or we're going to blow the whole place up, and nobody knows how the stories end, uh, and Disney has monetized it. Mm-hmm. Um, good and evil. You know, but I think that the the construction part of me, the part that wants to succeed and love and connect, uh, is very, very powerful. Heal, and the other part that wants to 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 find the shortcut, to to do it uh, quickly, to to um, to to call bullshit on the part that's trying to build something. That's a really strong part of me too. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and they, they, still, they, still, they still fight it out sometimes. Mm. Mm. So Mary, I, I need to pause for a second. We, we talked about you doing two songs, but based on everything, the conversation we've had to this moment, I need, I need a third song out of you because it's so rich. Oh, man, thank you. I feel like a song will be good now, too, that, that there's sort of a, uh, a lot going on in this conversation. and Maybe music could help uh, explain to the listeners uh, in a different way kind of what, what I'm trying to say. And I think I have a song for it. It's um, the title track to my new record that's coming out uh, 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 soon and it, it's a song I, I, I got the title from a, a doc, Dr. Martin Luther King speech and I wrote it with my dear friend Beth Nielsen Chapman it's called Dark Enough to See the Stars mm. alright at the bottom of my tears On the backside of my fears At the center of the pain I hear my voice call out your name Days go by, nothing works Can't believe how much this hurts Don't know where you are It's dark enough to see the stars Dark enough to see the stars Dark enough to see the light In an ocean black and deep In the middle of the night As I hold on to your love Like those lights from up above I have drifted out so far It's dark enough to see the stars Curse the clock, time is a thief Every life it measures brief Every child is born to die But the soul is born to fly Under heaven's canopy Tiny diamonds, you and me Lightning bugs inside a jar It's dark enough to see the stars Dark enough to see the stars Dark enough to see the light in an ocean black and deep In the middle of the night As I hold on to your love Like those lights from up above 
drifted out so far It's dark enough to see the stars I've been carried out so far It's dark enough to see the stars Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful song. Oh man, thank you. I told you we were going to have a good day, Anthony. Jeez. I told you. Pretty rich, right? Oh, my goodness. You done brought us to silence, Mary. Mm. A new favorite. I can't wait to. I'm going to be. I get obsessed with songs, so that'll be like on repeat, you know. You know when you can hit on Spotify where you can hit repeat just the one song? (laughs) I do that for hours. When does this come out? Um, the street date is June 3rd. Okay, so we have put, to wait. Is, there, is that single out or do we have to wait? No, nah, they put out a couple. They put Amsterdam out and they put out um, uh, World Unkind, which is another upbeat song with a downbeat title. <laughs> <laughs> Are we singing backgrounds on, on that version of Amsterdam that you're releasing? Uh, As a I, single? I think the Go Shats are hitting the road with me. Let's go. <laughs> that was beautiful, Mary. Oh, yeah. Thank y'all. That was, that was some, we were tapping into the power oh, right then. Golly. I, I wish everybody was, was so in the garage moved. studio with us right now. For real. We might have to start selling tickets. See all, the, <laughs> see all the atoms shimmering in the room. Yeah. It's great mm-hmm. reverb in here. That's right. Maybe we should it leave is, it. It's nice. It, it yeah. really is. Yeah. Who needs a rug when we got That's right. reverb? <laughs> well, that means she has to come for every show. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So, Mary, you know, Enneagram 8, wonderful human being and soul, mm. you know. You just turned 60. Mm-hmm. And uh, what? If you could say... If there's one thing I've learned, it's this. What would come after that? Gosh, you know, such a good question. Um, it's a hard question because it's such a big question. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, uh, I think if, if I were to have to narrow it down, um, the best days are the days where I'm present. Be here now. Mm. Most of my fears are about the future, which is not real. Mm-hmm. It hadn't happened yet. Um, and right here, right now, I'm okay. And, you know, as we age, I think it's absolutely normal and natural to start to become concerned about mortality. And if I let myself go too far down that road, I fill myself with fear. Uh, and I just got to rewind, back up, stop. Right here, right now, I'm okay. Be here now. And be with the people I'm with. Mm. Try to force myself into the now and be present for the people I'm with. Mm-hmm. We went bowling last night. And this is the simplest of things. East Nashville Bowl. And um, there was uh, five of us. And I was so tempted to pick up my phone and look at whatever's happening in the email department or, 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 or other distractions rather than just be at the bowling alley watching other people throw the ball down the lane. <laughs> and I kept telling myself, be here now. That's good. Every single bowler had a different technique. And when I watched, it was kind of funny. Like some people would just lob that thing, you know? Some people had the, the leg going behind their back beautifully and, and would, would uh, really look like a bowler. Other people would like roll it like a little kid with a ball between two legs and, and, and it just slowly rolled down and watch them get strikes. And if I could just make myself be present so when a strike happens I can celebrate with the person who got it that's a good life Mm -hmm. that's a good life I've missed so many strikes because I wasn't present Mm -hmm. and I think that's the lesson uh, of 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 um, 
maturing emotionally of age. Don't miss it. Mm-hmm. Give them a That's high good. five. Celebrate with them. Be there. Mm-hmm. Quit being so distracted and and you know making to do lists constantly. Be mm-hmm. here now. If, mm-hmm. if I learned anything, uh, that is. Because that's what love is. I would answer, you know, as an aide, I would say, well, what would your, you know, what, what, what would be the thing that you want to do with the rest of your life, which people ask me a lot, and I would always say, I want to love better. Well, how do you do that? Uh, I think by being present. So I want to just remind everybody, Mary Gaucher's uh, book, Saved by a Song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting. Now, if you are not a songwriter, this is a great book to read because it's not a how-to book about songwriting, though there is kind of woven into the narrative, you know, a conversation around the craft of songwriting. This is a song about living. Mm-hmm. 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 So this is a great memoir. It's not a, not a treatise on the craft of songwriting per se. It's your life story woven into the craft, and it's just a rich, rich um, story from which people of any background or interest can derive great meaning. And um, you have a new record dropping in June. Mm-hmm. The title of it is what? Dark Enough to See the Stars. Dark Enough to See the Stars. And what? It, how do people find you on Instagram and all that? So what's I'm, your? I'm everywhere. Mary, G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R. Right, at Mary Gaucher. Okay, now, I say all that in advance because mm-hmm. I want to close with the song that you're arguably most well-known for, right? Yeah, the, um, the uh, series Yellowstone popped this song into, uh, I think it was the closer of season one or season two, and that's a really popular show. And uh, that brought me uh, a lot of uh, new people who who hadn't heard my music before, uh, they shazammed it. Mm. And uh, that has been a real gift, yeah. uh, the Yellowstone gift. But this song is the one that has also been recorded by uh, other artists uh, a lot. Uh, Kathy Matea, uh, Boy George, um, Candy Staten. A lot of genres, which is cool for a songwriter, right? Cool. yeah. Like, what? There's a song that's been cut by an R&B art artist, yeah. like straight-up country artist, and Boy George. Like, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Now, that, wow. And Rolling Stones, didn't they say it was like the top 20 saddest songs of all time? Well, who was it that put yeah, that on Yeah, Rolling Stone did that, yeah. Was yeah. that what it was, though? The Top 20s, yeah, in the top, I think it was number... I don't remember the number. I don't think of it as a sad song. <laughs> what was actually. it though? What was it though? Was it was the Rolling Stone top twentieth songs, saddest songs of all time. Mm-hmm. I, and you know what's so funny is you're going to play this song in a minute, folks. So hold on. Um, I don't experience this as a sad song. It's a comforting I don't song. It's I don't such either. A comforting to me, song. it's a song of great comfort. Yeah. I think that what's happened, I think culturally, and I think it's just. Um, it's it's just the truth is that if something's real, there's a tendency towards calling it sad. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we've it's the disnification of everything. Like if you're if you're if you're presenting something that's that's vulnerable and real, it's uh, it, it's so uncommon that now it almost is disconcerting and people think of it as sad when, mm. when it's just real. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and by real, I mean the, um, the, the life that I experience day to day is embedded in the lyric of the song. It's not, there's no, um, affect, there's no, there's, there's no taped on, happy ending Mm -hmm. there's just the question you know of um of 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 the narrator uh that that's being asked really is is would you please Mm -hmm. please please have mercy on us Mm. yeah and so background to the song that was born in a hotel room in a little town called canso nova scotia there's only six hotel rooms in the whole town and I had one of them and I felt like the Queen of Sheba 
Um, I was playing a festival called the Stan Rogers Folk Festival. And I'm invited to play it again this summer, actually. And I'm so happy. I haven't been back since I wrote Mercy Now in that hotel room. Um, Stan Rogers was a folk singer who, um, who was beloved in the Maritimes, eastern Canada, northeastern Canada. Uh, and he died a hero. He was in a, uh, a plane crash on the tarmac. And the plane caught fire. And he got out. Uh, but he went back in to save people. And now I'm going to cry, but he uh, died a hero getting people out of that burning plane. Mm. And he was on his way home from the Kerrville Folk Festival. Mm. Um, and so this is a festival in his honor. Uh, and uh, I was invited to play it, and I was in that room, and my father at the time uh, had been in a car crash, uh, and he experienced... Uh, um, brain seizures after the car crash and we, we started to lose him cognitively. He had Alzheimer's-like symptoms. At the same time, um, uh, the Catholic uh, uh, Church was uh, being exposed in the Boston area uh, for rampant pedophilia. Uh, there were so many priests being shown uh, on TV in handcuffs. Uh, and we were building up to a war uh, under then-President uh, uh, Bush in the Middle East. And all of these things conflated to birth this song. All right. Here we go. Well, my father sure could use a little mercy now The fruits of his labor Fall and rot slowly on the ground His work is almost over Won't be long, he won't be around I love my father he could use some mercy now And my brother Sure could use a little mercy now He's a stranger to freedom Shackled to his fear and doubt The pain that he lives in It's almost more than living will allow I love my brother He could use mercy now My church and my country they could use a little mercy now As they sink into a poison pit It's gonna take forever to climb out They carry the weight of the faithful Who follow them down I love my church and country They could use some mercy now Every living thing Could use a little mercy now Only the hand of grace in the race towards another mushroom cloud there's people in power who'll do anything to keep their crown I 
I love life, life itself Could use some mercy could use a little mercy now Oh, I know we don't deserve it But we need it anyhow We hang in the balance We dangle between hell and hallowed ground And every single one of us Could use some mercy now Yeah, every single one of us Could use some mercy now Typology Tribe, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Until next time.